Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. He kōna e purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Nā mihi nui, and welcome to this podcast from Our Changing World on RNZ. I'm Alison Balance, and one of the pleasures of our Summer Science series is the chance to play some brand new podcasts made by science communication students at the University of Otago. The podcasts are part of their coursework, and they are told to look at a controversial topic. The government is currently considering a proposal from the Southeast Marine Protection Forum for a marine protected area network between Timaru in South Canterbury and Waipapa Point in Southland, and the idea has divided locals. Student Amy Archer decided to investigate. So get this, I have an ecology background, right? And all through my degree, we were taught that marine protected areas were really good havens for sea life. They were preserving biodiversity, allowing numbers to replenish, and providing great tourist attractions. But it turns out, like everything on this crazy planet, getting MPAs put in place is more complicated than you'd think. Scientists are arguing over how effective they are, the public are arguing over where they should go, if anywhere. This is being played out right now under our noses as Otago tries to get its first MPA set up. But man, oh man, it's a broiling maelstrom of clashing opinions. But the silver lining is it's a fantastic topic for my science controversy podcast. Uh-huh. I'm Amy, and I'm calling this one Controversies, Reservations About Marine Reserves. <laughs> See what I did there. Joining me to help explain some of the science is Otago University's Dr. Anna Wood, marine ecologist and MPA extraordinaire. What was the question? (laughs) And I also take a trip out to sea to have a look at where one of Otago's new MPAs may be. Let's-a go! For those who aren't mer nerds out there, what are marine protected areas and why do they exist? Basically, they're a mapped out section of ocean or coast that have restrictions on the sorts of activities allowed there. Here, Anna explains the two types. So there's absolute no take, where all you can do is science, you have to do science with a permit. These are type 1 MPAs. Type 2 MPAs are variable in their restrictions, but as a foundation they focus on keeping the seabed, or benthos, undisturbed. There are benthic protected areas, so you can do midwater trawling, but you can't trawl on the seafloor. MPAs exist because when done correctly, they can be a major help to preserving sea life and habitats. But they're also helpful because they give scientists a better picture of what different areas of the ocean can look like without disturbance, especially type 1 areas. From a science perspective, those are the most useful because that's when we get to see what really goes on. It's really important to have a baseline for comparison when assessing the state of our oceans. In no-take MPAs, all the species are free to just do their thing to grow and interact and go through their normal processes in the absence of human effects. To be perfectly honest, here in the Otago region of Aotearoa, MPA stuff is dragging behind. 
Once upon a time, New Zealand was making waves, leading the world in marine reserve action with the Lee Reserve in the North Island, which has been a real success for scientists. It's so old now that we've been able to see these processes really going on over a period of time. But... Down here in Otago, we are the only place in the country that has no marine reserves. This is pretty dismal, considering how many instigation attempts there have been. Thankfully, the tides are changing. For the last four years since I started university, the Southeast Marine Protection Forum has been wading through discussion and deliberation with the goal of setting up some MPAs. There has been phenomenal scientific and public engagement, with over 2,800 submissions to the forum. They've tried to get the public on board from the very beginning. They had a committee with various people on board, fishing clubs, commercial fishers, Department of Conservation, scientists, headed up by a lawyer. As fantastic as this interaction with the public is, the flood of data and opinions means the process has been practically sessile, taking almost three times as long as intended. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. It's hugely political because people like to go out fishing. Eventually, there were two proposals put forward. Consensus could not be reached because neither side was willing to compromise further. The first one is favoured by more parties and is of a larger combined area, while the second one covers less area and is favoured by commercial fisheries and some recreational fishermen. The second one apparently doesn't meet the goals that were set out for the MPA network, but it shows how there are other factors at play. Fishing is an important part of the economy, so there's a cultural aspect, there's an economic aspect. This is where the social side of the controversy comes in. Commercial fisheries still care about the environment being healthy, especially because their income is based on it but they need to be able to harvest the fish that provide their income in the short term as well. And they would obviously prefer more free reign to do so, as the second network proposal allows. On the other side, scientists and conservationists like Anna are hugely in favour of the first network proposal, especially because it gives the best protection to a specific habitat she's very passionate about. There are habitats in Otago more or less incomparable to anything else nationally or globally. One of those is the Bryce Owen Thickets off Otago Shelf. I figured this was a really great opportunity to hone in on a specific area and why we want to protect it. This area Anna is talking about is just off Tairoa Head, at the mouth of Dunedin Harbour to the south. Apparently it's full of life. There's the albatross at Tairoa Head. They're coming out to feed in these areas. Hugely productive. Pause. Just a quick note. Productive means there's a bunch of algae photosynthesising to make oxygen and sugars that become food for the first tiny animals in the food chain. Photosynthesizing organisms in the ocean actually make 50% of the oxygen in our atmosphere, so, you know, they're kind of important. Now, where were we? Hugely productive, and it's really busy. You're out there in a boat, and you will regularly see dolphins and whales, and, of course, the albatross and all those big tube-nosed birds are around all the time. Penguins, fur seals, sea lions. It's a busy, busy place, and the seafloor is no different. I don't know about you, but I thought that sounded pretty exciting. So I went and found the bed that Anna was talking about. During my ecology degree, I took a nautical studies paper because I was interested in marine ecology. My lecturer was a retired sea captain called Graham Turner, and he's been kind enough to let me return on a student voyage out of the harbour and along the Otago coast. So we're currently just on Tyro ahead, and I'm staring out into the ocean about where the marine reserves proposed would be deeper water off Otago Coast. Not gonna lie, my first impression was underwhelming. It is amazing how much nothingness there is out here when you're just looking out on the sea surface. I did see a lot of seabirds flying around, different types of albatrosses, petrels, cormorants, gulls. 
And as Anna described, this seems indicative that there was more going on beneath the surface. Could it be the famous bryozoan patch? Let's take a look. <laughs> Much more interesting down under, folks. It's colourful, it's flamboyant, no two things look the same. My eyes are sort of struggling to interpret what I'm seeing right now. I'm scrolling through Google Images, I'm not actually on the seafloor. <laughs> There's no way Steve would let me take my sound recorder down there. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that when they say diversity, they bloody well mean diversity. Bryozoan is a suspension-feeding organism. That means they suck, literally. They suck water through their bodies and catch floating bits of food. They kind of look a bit like a coral, but they're not related to corals in any way. Tricky. They form thickets. As far as we know, they grow quite slowly, maybe a few millimetres each year. Blimey, that's a yawn-inducing pace. Give us some juicy details, Anna. This species is at least 20 million years old, so it's been forming habitat in what is New Zealand for at least that long, which is crazy. Oh, so they're flamboyant fossils. These bryozoans are growing up into the water column and making all of this complexity. So it's a bit like looking at the desert, the sandy desert, and then all of a sudden you get these little oases of bryozoans and they're just covered in stuff. That's technical ecologist speak. We like it when things are covered in stuff. Stuff is good. What kind of stuff, Anna? Sea squirts and anemones and little crabs mm. and little shrimps. Oh. These awesome little things called sepunculates, <laughs> which... So basically I'm immature and think the word sepunculate is hilarious. Isn't it though? Come on, sepunculate. But luckily Anna thinks they're awesome too. Indulge me for a few seconds. Here's a marine ecologist frothing about one of the cool sea animals we're trying to protect. deposit feeders but you always kind of find them jammed in somewhere <laughs> like i remember my first sepunculate i was 18 and in Brittany, and it kind of broke open a piece of rock and there was a sort of mushy mud inside and then there's just the sepunculate just around there. <laughs> they're, they're brilliant um have you come across them no i don't think so uh, if they, they don't look exciting but when you see them you're like, yeah that's a do well that was tangential they're really cool anyway what was the question <laughs> For all the awesome things down there, there are scary things too. Important, but scary. Like the things I like to call giant chompy death worms. So these guys, they've got like three sets of jaws and they can just kind of <laughs> grasp onto stuff. <laughs> and I'm not keen on them when they're alive, to be honest. Yeah, they're they're pretty ferocious <laughs> yeah. and they're strong. Big one would be maybe 30 centimetres long. A few sets of jaws, a few sets of eyes, tentacles, eating machines. <laughs> Yikes, I'm getting out of here. Now hopefully you have a small picture of what scientists are trying to protect with MPAs. But wait, what who? In my absence, a visitor has arrived. To my left here I can see a boat and Graham's just told me that it's about the right size and shape to possibly be a fishing vessel, maybe a trawler. According to Anna, trawling is one of the biggest threats for this area's biodiversity. The disturbance is that tend to cause a problem with the dredging and the trawling, and on a Targo shelf it tends to be trawling. Pretty much huge fishing nets are dragged along the seafloor to catch bottom-dwelling fish species, for example orange ruffy and hokey. To keep the nets open, you either have massive steel beams across the bottom opening of the net, look like telegraph poles, or giant wooden flaps. And these are literally like enormous, like a big church door. They sit at either end of the net, and as the boat moves forward, what you end up with is these enormous gouge marks where the trawl doors have sat in the seafloor. Either way, trawling means... You get smashed to pieces either end up in the trawl and the fishermen have to sort you out or just get left on the seafloor. Smashed. Smashed. <laughs> Smashed. Remember why this is a problem? 
This is a really, really diverse habitat, and it turns out that the more bryozoans you have, the more of everything else there is. It works the other way. The fewer bryozoans you have, the fewer of everything else you have. John, the owner of the boat that I'm on, is a keen recreational fisher, and even he has noticed the collapse of the fish ecosystems over the years. He's telling me that even in the last 40 years, he's seen a, seen a rapid decline in the amount of fish available to recreational fishers. He says it's really gone downhill. I guess these marine reserves can't come soon enough. It's really interesting to see the fishing process going on out here where there may be a marine reserve soon. They won't be allowed to do it. Smashed bryozoans equals a smashed ecosystem, which doesn't benefit the fisheries either. This is why MPAs are important. But obviously the fisheries still need to fish, so where should they fish? When I asked Captain Turner what he thought about MPAs, he couldn't understand why the fisheries were getting in a fuss. Surely there's enough water to go around, he said. Is also the issue of the most diverse and important environments that the scientists want to protect being where you find the most fish. So usually fisheries want to harvest there as well. Unfortunately, as long as we as humans want to eat tons of fish, we're going to have to sacrifice some marine environments in order to harvest enough fish to feed our pesky pescatarian society. I blame the hipsters. From a conservationist perspective, there may be a temptation to push for simply ignoring the fisheries, but I'd strongly advise against muddying those waters, because studies have shown that the success of marine reserves depends heavily on the involvement and cooperation of key stakeholders, such as fisheries. And there have been exciting developments. As of the 11th of May, the government has taken up the first network proposal for consultation. Oh, the drama! What will the ministers decide? The process is by no means complete, and even once the MPAs are decided and set in stone, it doesn't end there. There will be reviews every 25 years, and they'll look closely at whether or not the MPAs are being effective and protecting what we want to protect. We'll also have to see what happens for the fisheries and the economy. I can imagine there being a few ruffled fishery feathers if this proposed network comes to fruition. All in all, the push and pull of this controversy makes it an exciting and dynamic conversation that encourages research and thinking. So even if uncomfortable compromises have to be made, they're little steps forward in figuring out a way to create meaningful action with real results. Thanks for listening, and if you're feeling hooked on this exciting story, please visit southeastmarine.org.nz for ongoing information. It's not too late to save our oceans. Maybe we should just stop eating fish. (laughs) Now you're really going to start an argument. Thanks, Amy. And that podcast was produced by science communication student Amy Archer from the University of Otago. Thanks also to marine biologist Anna Wood. I'm Alison Balance, and this was a summer science podcast from Our Changing World on RNZ. You can listen again or find out more at our website, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Thanks for your company. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.